For over 100 years, diagnostic testing in microbiology focused on culturing of the organism. Organisms needed to be grown on culture media in order to identify them. Identification methods were based on biochemical reactions during growth and even resistance detection dependent on growth in the presence of antibiotics. Recently, a whole host of new diagnostic techniques have been developed in microbiology. As with anything though, appropriate use is vital particularly if they're expected to couple with antimicrobial stewardship programs in reducing unnecessary and inappropriate antimicrobial use. Hello, this is Microbe Mail, and I am your host, Vindana Chibabai. Today, we're talking about rapid molecular diagnostic tests, and we'll focus on the do's and don'ts. My guest today is Dr. Mohamed Said. Mohamed is a microbiologist based at the Chwane Academic Hospital in South Africa's capital city, Chwane. Mohamed and I were also classmates in medical school. So it's really great to have you join me today, Mohamed, and welcome to Microbe Mail. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Vindana. Pleasure is mine, and thanks for the opportunity for having me on your show. As always, let me remind you that you can sign up on the Microbe Mail website to receive email updates of new episode releases and storyboards. Follow Microbe on social media. All the Microbe links are in our show notes of the episode. And lastly, remember, mum always says sharing is caring. So please remember to share Microbe content. So, Mohammed, shall we rapidly roll into this episode? Yeah, I like your play on words there, Vanilla, but yes, let's, uh, let's give it a go. Okay, cool. Fantastic. I think we need to start this discussion right at the beginning and talk about what a rapid molecular diagnostic test is. So can you go through this sort of briefly? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, a rapid molecular test is basically an assay or a test uh, that are going to give you a result in a very short turnaround time. And it uses techniques such as the polymerase chain reaction of PCR most commonly to do this. And I think everybody has become aware of PCR now with COVID testing in particular. Um, so let me give you an example of how uh, this will work, is that if you have a clinician who sends in, for example, let's say a stool specimen, uh, if we look at the traditional way the laboratory used to work up that specimen, uh, we used to do a microscopy or we do a microscopy culture and sensitivity, and uh, you're going to get a result in, let's say, two days to three days. Uh, whereas with the rapid molecular test, uh, that you can provide that same result and an answer in about one to two hours. Wow. So one can already see why this might be an exciting diagnostic tool. So in what scenarios are these tests generally used? And what would you say is the aim of providing such a test? Okay, so uh, I think with, uh, let me start with, uh, speaking about these new molecular tests and say that, first of all, these tests come in a, what we call a multiplex form. So here, this means that a single test, you know, you target multiple pathogens at the same time. And these multiplex tests are, are often commercially available, and they're available in a format that allows for syndromic testing. So uh, I'd like to illustrate that again by way of example. And that is, uh, let's say that a clinician is suspecting a patient that has a meningitis. You collect the appropriate specimen, which would be a cerebrospinal fluid, 
uh, you send it to the lab and request a meningitis panel. So now this panel is going to have all the organisms that's associated with meningitis. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you, uh, let's say, a, uh, somebody suspecting, uh, a clinician suspecting pneumonia, you request for a pneumonia panel, and that's going to pick up all pathogens associated with pneumonia. Right. So essentially, these panels will be testing simultaneously, right, for a range of bacteria viruses, fungi, uh, and parasites were applicable as well. And you're going to get a result in an hour or two. So uh, as you can imagine, that very early on, the clinician can already distinguish uh, between, let's say, a viral and a bacterial infection. Mm. Uh, and a decision can be made whether you know, you're going to start antibiotics or now we're going to withhold antibiotics. So uh, the main aim is, you know, to give a a result faster. And by doing this, it takes the guesswork out of what you're treating. Um, Besides picking up the organisms, these tests also have the potential to pick up resistance markers to antibiotics. Uh, And that can be useful, again, in tailoring or directing your therapy very early in the management of the patient. Mm. And uh, as you can imagine, you know, this is great uh, uh, for, you know, initiating appropriate antimicrobials. This is good for the fight against antimicrobial resistance. And as we all know, that is the scourge of our times. Uh, Also great for antimicrobial stewardship. And beyond that, even for infection control as well, you know, where you can isolate a patient quite early on in the diagnosis. Mm, so these sound super exciting um, and very, very helpful in, as you say, the fight against AMR and for IPC and AMS programs. Definitely. Yeah, so rather than sitting here and going through things like sensitivity and specificity of the assays and you know getting all complicated with numbers, I thought it might be best for us to make this sort of a practical discussion. Because at the end of the day, Really, what the clinician wants to know is how how am I going to use this test and how best should I use this test? So let's do this as a do's and don'ts kind of session. So let's go through a list of do's when it comes to using rapid diagnostic tests, and then we'll go through the don'ts. Okay, sounds great. Okay, awesome. So I'll give the list of do's, and then you can just maybe give me some background or some better understanding of, of why it's a do. So first, check if it is feasible and cost-effective to introduce the test in your setting. So here we do need to think about sensitivity, specificity, and the prevalence of the infection in your setting. Am I right? Uh, yes, absolutely, Evan. You're quite correct there. Um, looking at that first part of your question, you know, molecular tests in general are expensive, right? Not only the mm. initial setup is expensive, but even the reagents and then the kits that you're using per test is going to be quite expensive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, perhaps the best way to introduce this test is, uh, you know, you, you should start off by using it for certain settings rather than the entire hospital. So what do I mean by this? And by this, I mean that... Uh, Take example of a nosocomial pneumonia. You want to introduce a, a, a rapid molecular test to diagnose nosocomial pneumonia. Uh, you know, the best place in the hospital to introduce that would be, let's say, the ICU 
where you know it's going to benefit those patients the most. Yes. And these, uh, you, you start off there, and then the rest of the hospital, we still just do the routine microscopy, culture, and sensitivity. Mm. So you know, now each hospital or laboratory, you know, will have to work out uh, their own algorithms as to how they will apply these tests. And uh, obviously, that is going to depend upon the resources that's available to that institute or that hospital and also the expertise available to them. Right. Now, um, coming to your question about sensitivity, specificity and that. So now the test you want to implement, uh, obviously, even as a clinician, you know, you must have uh, diagnostic accuracy in your setting. Um, now, for this, you know, a good laboratory will always go through a thorough evaluation of the assay prior to them implementing the test. And uh, if I'm a clinician, I mean, it would be best for, to check the results of this evaluation with your laboratory. And this evaluation report should contain information with regard to the sensitivity of the test, the specificity, its negative and positive predictive values. Uh, you know, you'll get information such as it's the, the reproducibility, uh, accuracy of the test, percentage, percentage agreement, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and so as you said, a good laboratory would have done all of this groundwork before offering the test. But certainly if a clinician was interested, you could go to your laboratory and your microbiologist and say, you know, I'd like to, out of interest, I'd like to see that data. Yeah, most definitely. And then the second do, and I think that we talk about this no matter the test we're talking about, is to ensure an appropriately collected specimen. Uh, this this goes without uh, saying. I mean, and and as you mentioned, you know, it's a principle. Yeah. It's important not only for uh, rapid testing, but for all uh, microbiological testing. Yeah. Uh, now, if an appropriate specimen uh, is not collected, uh, you know, people should just be aware that the laboratory cannot give you a proper result. Mm -hmm. um, and. Now, focusing in particular with regard to molecular testing, right, uh, it's important to know and to collect the specimen uh, that is validated to be used by the molecular assay. Uh, I'll give you an example here as well to make it easier to understand. Uh, is that a, a molecular test may require a specific type of swab to be collected. So, for example, you know, they will specify that for this test to work, you need to collect a dry swab. Uh, so if somebody collects a swab that's put into a gel or a transport medium, you know, you run the risk of getting an invalid result because, you know, there could be uh, certain PCR inhibitors uh, in that gel or that transport medium, uh, which is going to give you an invalid results. Mm. So uh, when you're using a costly test such as these tests, you know, make certain you collect an appropriate specimen or else risk getting an invalid result. Yeah, absolutely true and very, very important to remember. And then the next do is clinical signs and symptoms must be in keeping with the expected syndrome. So for example, you've been giving good examples thus far. So does the patient actually have a pneumonia? Does the patient actually have acute infective gastroenteritis? Uh, yes, you, uh, uh, Vandana, you raised a very important point. And uh, as I've mentioned, 
that uh, many of the newer commercial tests have been multiplexed into what we call syndromes. So it would be important to correctly identify the signs and symptoms and then ask for the right assay. Otherwise, it's going to result in wastage mm. and a delay in getting a result, which is exactly the opposite of what rapid molecular tests are designed to achieve. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also, I think it could potentially result in overtreatment with antibiotics if you get a result yeah, that's good would. keeping here. Yeah. Agreed, agreed, definitely. And then the next do is to request the test appropriately on the lab request form or the lab request system. Uh, yeah, very true. So it's very, very important to specify which test you you ordering. And, you know, if a failure to specify this will again result uh, in delayed turnaround times and it's going to result in uh, wastage. Now, uh, you know, if I may just add here that it is always also vital to add the uh, patient history, uh, you know, as much of it as, as, as is uh, possible uh, on the lab request form. Uh, and that information is actually, you know, vital for the lab to understand how to process and make sense of the specimen and the result that you're going to get. Absolutely. Um, and if we, I mean, if we look at the number of times you actually see a diagnosis on the lab request form, you can probably count them on, on, on a single hand. But I don't know about you, I get very excited when I actually see that clinical history on the form. <laughs> No, definitely. You know, you you, you look at that uh, specimen, you know, differently, and it 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 really makes a difference, and and that's what uh, we need to get across. Absolutely, definitely. Now I've got as another do potential pre-authorization of the test if this is something that can be introduced through the antimicrobial stewardship committee. Yeah, I mean, this will be something to consider taking into account. Uh, the cost of, of these tests that we've been speaking about uh, and to prevent unwanted testing uh, pre-authorization by let's say a consultant in the department uh, that can be something that can work now uh, if i may just add this uh, uh, that previously if we look at the private sector uh, the medical aids in the private sector were actually not paying for some of these rapid molecular tests uh, and the reason for us be you know it was sort of being abused, so to speak, you know, mm. everybody was asking for it. Yeah. Uh, however, since they've actually changed their stance and uh, the, the, they're, they're going to now pay for these tests, but that's provided that it is requested by a specialist and it is requested for a hospitalized patient. Right. So to safeguard against the random abuse of the test, uh, a measure such as pre-authorization, which you're suggesting, uh, which you are suggesting, sorry, may be valuable. Uh, and however, you know, the other caveat to this is that, you know, the pre-authorization process, uh, it should be efficient and it should be fast. Absolutely. And, you know, it mustn't be coupled with this bureaucracy and red tape and running around from pillar to post getting <laughs> forms and documents, yeah. etc. So, you know, if, if that's going to happen, then, you know, you're going to get a rapid test here, which is, you know, gonna, not going to be so rapid after all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, and then that's certainly the experience in the South African private sector, as you've mentioned. And I wonder whether similar things have happened in other parts of the world as well. Um, and then 
second last do that I have is to make sure the rapid test is actually offered at a 24-hour laboratory on site. Uh, yes, again, an important uh, point you're raising there. Otherwise, you know, we would be defeating the point of it being a, a rapid test. Uh, <laughs> the, the other problem with that is that if it's not offered a, a, in a 24-hour lab, it will result in tests being batched. Mm -hmm. uh, and then again, you know, I mean, for a rapid test, that's going to be counterproductive. Yeah, absolutely. So there are settings where these tests, you find them kind of in reference laboratories and that sort of thing. And as you say, it completely defeats the purpose. They need to be on site where clinical decisions can be made um, based on the result. Yeah. And then the last do is to check prior to test request if the result would actually alter patient management. Uh, and another excellent point you're raising there, Vindana. And you know, the attending doctors, a clinician should always you know, decide this prior to asking for the test. Uh, if you're going to do a test which is expensive, you know, it should result in either the escalation or, or de-escalation of treatment in a patient. Uh, in other words, it should have some effect on the outcome of the patient. Yeah. And by practic practicing this, uh, we will be conserving our resources uh, for those who will benefit from these tests the most. Absolutely. So if I can just give an example here, Mohammed, if we think about a patient with sure. meningitis, and we know things, pathogens like streptococcus pneumoniae and haemophilus influenzae are fastidious pathogens. One dose of antibiotics, even if it's an oral antibiotic given by a general practitioner, can sterilize the CSF and you may get a negative culture from that uh, CSF specimen. However, if in the laboratory, um, the technologist reports gram-positive lancet-shaped cocci that are in pairs and are encapsulated, but you have a negative culture, adding on a rapid molecular test in this particular situation is really not offering you that much more. You already have a decent enough suspicion that this is a strep pneumomeningitis. Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, that will be considered wastage. I mean, it's not gonna uh, influence the treatment in any case in, that, in this scenario. Yeah, I think so as well. Okay, so that was all the doing. Shall we move on to the donting? <laughs> okay. Okay, so the first don't is do not request the test routinely in all patients with the syndrome. Okay, so uh, to reiterate the point, you know, this simply would be too unaffordable for most healthcare systems. And uh, that's not only in South Africa, but I think the world over, you know, you, you can't just expect to use these tests as a blanket uh, for all patients. Uh, so the advice is to screen your patients on a case-by-case -case basis and, uh, you know, then request the correct test. And I would suggest that for those junior doctors uh, who may not have the insight to do this, uh, the wards should have algorithms in place uh, which will make it easy to select your patients appropriately. These algorithms are a really great suggestion. I think that would be very helpful, especially for the juniors, as you said. Uh, no, I was just saying your interns, uh, uh, medical officers who may not have that much of experience, uh, I think it's going to be a very valuable tool for them. Yeah, absolutely. The next one is do not use this test as a rapid test to affect treatment if offered at a centralized laboratory. 
Uh, yeah, you know, this this will have the potential to make this again a non-rapid test. So, uh, you know, we look at a scenario where you've got a decentralized laboratory which uh, will receive the specimen. Uh, they then have to send the sample to a centralized lab where these tests will be based. And then the specimen, uh, you know, and it, it's going to be at the mercy of the transport facilities, basically. And unfortunately, Vindana, as you know, mm. uh, within the public service, you know, it can take uh, days for a specimen to transport it between two labs, which may not even be that far from each other. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it happens all the times, but uh, you know, oftentimes we do find that happening. That's true. Uh, and what, once received by the central lab, uh, the specimen then st still needs to be registered. They need to run the test. Uh, result has to be then communicated to the decentralized laboratory often, and then they have to um, communicate that uh, to the clinician. So, as you can see from these, these potential delays, you know, it goes against the principles of rapid testing. Yeah, absolutely. So, as you say, there should be sufficient logistics in place to actually allow for something like this to work well um, and, and have streamlined workflow um, if you were going to have something like this yeah. work. Yeah, correct. Next would be to not offer a test in a setting without an active antimicrobial stewardship program in place. Uh, yes, I agree with you. I mean, that's going to be counterintuitive. Uh, the rapid molecular testing is uh, one of the critical roles that a microbiology lab plays uh, in an antimicrobial stewardship program. So uh, once we have a result, the microbiologist can then make the recommendations through a multidisciplinary antimicrobial stewardship team to alter patient's treatment. And without such a, pro such a program, you know, uh, these results, I feel, will actually have limited impacts on patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, in terms of clinical studies, there have been several studies that have looked at the rapid diagnostic test with and without the AMS um, intervention. Um, and it was found that in the absence of the AMS intervention, the rapid test on its own actually had very little benefit um, on, on patient management. Yeah, not surprising. And then do not offer the test where a microbiologist or a pathologist, if that's what it's called in your setting, is not available to interpret the result. Yeah, that's quite correct. Uh, it's usually the pathologist or microbiologist who will interpret uh, and discuss the result with the treating clinicians. And um, this is particularly important in a two scenario, among others. Uh, firstly, you know, um, the microbiologist, you know, looking at certain parameters in the lab as well as the clinical condition, you know, you. Uh, he or she can help to determine whether the result that you're getting may represent colonization or is this true infection. That's one area where, you know, the role of the pathologist is very important. Mm. And uh, a second role where it's very important for the microbiologist to be involved is that due to the sensitivity of these molecular tests, right, uh, you find multiple organisms may be detected. So you can get a stool specimen and you find, for example, there you get norovirus, you get Clostridioides difficile, and you get E. coli uh, also detected there. Now, I think there, you know, the microbiologist in conjunction with the clinician will actually be able to determine 
which is the true pathogen. Mm. And uh, I, I think the problem is that if, you know, the, the, the role of the pathologist or microbiologist is going to be excluded, there's a risk of over-treatment uh, if results are not interpreted correctly. Yeah, fully agree with you there. Then the next don't is do not replace standard microscopy culture and susceptibility testing for molecular tests. Uh, yeah, so as we sit here to, uh, Today, you know, culture still remains the gold standard at this time. Uh, and yes, you're quite correct to say that uh, due to the sensitivity of these tests, like we mentioned previously, colonizers may be uh, picked up, you know. Uh, now, when we do culture, particularly when it's done in a semi-quantitative method, as often uh, laboratories do when it comes to tracheal aspirates, uh, bronchial alveolar lavages, urine specimens, uh, that can help to determine whether something is a colonizer or a true pathogen. Right. Um, having said that, you know, another very important reason that uh, microscopy culture and sensitivity cannot be omitted is to determine the antimicrobial susceptibility results. Now, you may remember I mentioned earlier that the rapid molecular tests can de determine resistant markers. Mm. Uh, they do pick up the genes for these resistance markers, but whether it's going to be expressed or not, uh, phenotypically, that we, we cannot say. And besides that, as it stands, these molecular tests, they cannot give you an MIC value. Uh, so in order for, uh, for us to get that, you know, you still have to do uh, MCNS. And, and, and that is, is definitely required to, for us to direct your therapy optimally. So 100% agree, we, cannot, we still require MCNS to be done. And then the last don't here is do not use the test to monitor response to treatment. Yes, so, uh, you know, these rapid molecular tests um, are capable, you know, they're so sensitive that they're capable of detecting minute quantities of nucleic acids. Yes. And it may even pick up uh, DNA from uh, non-viable or dead organisms. Mm. Uh, so th these tests may remain positive for weeks or months, and uh, some have been shown to stay positive even after a year or more uh, of, of testing. Yeah. So therefore, as you can imagine, they, they, they cannot be used to monitor your response to treatment. Uh, using it in this fashion, you know, it's just going to be wasting valuable resources without having any impact on the patient management. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mohamed, on MicroMail, we also like to think about children who are a very important patient population, and also if there's differences between genders, between male and female. So do you think any of these recommendations would differ if we had to think about children or specific genders? Uh, Vinan, I think the, the short answer there is uh, is no. Uh, these tests work equally well in children, okay. particularly well in adults. Uh, no difference in performance in different genders either. Okay. Uh, I think we need to stick to the basic principles, which is to choose your group of patients correctly, collect the appropriate specimen, uh, request the correct test at the lab, uh, based on the syndrome that you're dealing with. And uh, yeah, you're good to go. Okay, perfect. Michael, oh. just in time. <laughs> We're ready for the spotlight feature. Hello, everyone. 
All right, so we're going to play a uh, abridged version of 30 Seconds. Um, Vin and Mo, how we're going to play this is I'm going to read out a little uh, riddle of um, an organism or something microbiology related, and then I want you guys to shout your name. First person to shout the name can then answer the question, and we're going to do five. Best of five wins. Is okay. that all okay? Okay. I'm feeling a bit scared. I feel like running out of my own office. <laughs> <laughs> Mohammed, are you ready? Uh, yeah, let's let's give it a go. Okay, so so you want us to shout out our names? Yes, yeah, okay. and whoever whoever calls first. Hopefully, there's no delay, but <laughs> um, then uh, we'll uh, yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, the first one. I'm dreaded and debilitating. I'll make your tummy run. Clindamycin can trigger me, and oral vancomycin can heal. Then. Mohammed? <laughs> I'm afraid it was Vin first. <laughs> Clostridioides difficile? Yes. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> one to Vin. Um, the next one. I treat only gram-negative bacilli. Sometimes I'm your last resort, but the some organisms are stronger than me. Proteus is one. Mohammed? Uh, yes, Mohammed? <laughs> Say again, sorry? Golistin? Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you're not even waiting for the end of the question. That's <laughs> cheating. <laughs> That's acceptable, right, Michael? <laughs> yes, no, that's more than acceptable. <laughs> okay, and the next one. Who am I? I can be given intravenously or orally. I can damage your kidneys and ears. If I'm administered rapidly, I turn a man red. Again, vancomycin. Yes. But oh, well, so. not again, but it was similar to in the last one. Oh, I didn't say my name. Okay. <laughs> Two Vin, it's, one uh, Disqualified. Yeah. Disqualified from my own game. Didn't follow the <laughs> SOP of the, of the game. Um, okay, the next one. This is a disease. This disease licks the joints, bites the heart, and feasts on the skin. It lives in the throat and looks like pearls on a string. Mohammed. Yes, Mo. Uh, group A strip. Yes, that's correct. Well done. I can cause a VAP or pretty much any HAP. Hospital acquired pneumonia. I love green and have a metallic sheen. Mohammed? Yes, Mohammed? Uh, Pseudomonas serogenosa? Yes, very good. Woohoo! <laughs> well done! <laughs> so I think we have a winner. Looks so like we do. I think, Mohammed, you've won. Congratulations. Yes, thanks. <laughs> When's the prize coming? So you get your prize right now, and I don't know, Mohammed, if you know, but when you play a microbe mail game, then the stakes yeah. are very high because you get a microbe named after you. Did you know? Oh, no. Yeah. So, but I just realized That's last good. night that I've been doing this all wrong because I always give the genus name with the person's first name and then the species is their surname. But actually, if you think about it, it should be the other way around. Mm. So I guess that mm. means you would have to be Seydella, Muhammad and I. <laughs> <laughs> How does that sound to you? <laughs> Great. Uh, I'm, I'm honored. Okay. Your children are also going to have to be Seydella now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. And thanks so much, Michael, for joining us 
today on our microbial game. That was lots of fun. Thank you for having me. I see you've Thank got you lots more questions to get through, so maybe I'll have to call you through another time Definitely. for another game. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, thanks, Michael. Excellent moment, and well done. <laughs> thanks. So, do you have a quick take-home message or any final tips for the listeners? Um, let's think. My 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 take-home message uh, to the listeners is that. Um, I think the microbiology laboratory is undergoing serious changes. The traditional culture methods which we used to may soon be replaced uh, by these rapid molecular tests. And from where I'm sitting, uh, this seems almost inevitable. Uh, so whether we like it or not, we need to gear ourselves to this new reality. We need to embrace it for the better management of our patients out there. Thanks, Mohammed, And thank you so much for joining me on MicroMail. I hope you're able to come and join me again sometime soon. Yeah, sure. Thanks for the opportunity, Vindana. And it was my pleasure having this discussion with you. We'd love to receive your feedback on this episode. So if you can, pop us a message either by email or on social media to let us know. That's it from me, Vin, your microbe messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.